They were never this united against the Canaanites or the Jebusites. Right? They, they were united only when it came to fighting their own people. They're united in causing division in the covenant community. They had, and they hadn't forgotten. Interestingly, you also see another word repeated three times. They mentioned that, that Benjamin is their brothers. In verse 13, and he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places. And, uh, oh, sorry, that's 19, sorry. 20, verse 13. Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows of Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers. So the Benjaminites considered them their brothers, or at least it, the author here is recognizing that relationship. Verse 23 And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? So now you have it from the Israelites' perspective, considering Benjamin their brothers, almost saying, we don't know that this is the right thing to do. Tell us, Lord, are we in the wrong? We're we're rising up to fight against our, our brothers. Should we do this? And it's almost shocking how the Lord responds because he gives them the affirmative. He tells them to move forward. And then again in verse 18, you have the people of Israel rising up to Bethel and inquiring of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Now that's almost identical to what we read in Judges 1. Verses 1 and 2. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So the instruction they had at the very beginning of the book was to attack the Canaanites. They go up to the Lord, inquire who should go up first, and the Lord responds, Judah. They're doing the same thing here, but now instead of attacking the Canaanites, they're fighting with Benjamin, and the Lord has given them the same instruction, send Judah first. So unlike chapters 17 through 19, as I've mentioned, there wasn't any indication from the author's perspective, from the narrative, that the Lord was involved directly, right? We know God is sovereign over the events that were taking place, but there was no activity from God like the Lord did this or the Lord did that. It, it was purely imposters speaking on behalf of God, saying, right, the, like where the Levite is speaking for God. But there was no direct involvement. Here we see very direct involvement from the Lord. The Lord is actively leading Israel here and throughout the war, right? On two more occasions during the war, at the end of day one and at the end of day two, they go up to Bethel, they inquire of the Lord for direction. He says, yes, attack. So he leads them ultimately into a devastating mission. They experience what was devastating unity for the first time they're united really in sin they're united against their brothers but he's leading them now god is leading them in this devastating mission we'll come back to that verses 19 through 23 detail day one israel attacks 22,000 israelites die 
They respond by weeping and inquiring of the Lord, who again informs them to attack Benjamin. Day 2, verses 24 through 28, Israel attacks, and this time 18,000 Israelites die. So this army is just being decimated, 400,000 strong. It's going to be several days before they, they wear them out, but, but it doesn't appear that Benjamin is, is really being affected too much by these attacks. Um, it doesn't relate any of their deaths, and it would appear that some of them have been dying in this case because by the end you have, you have originally 26,700 men come out and only 25,100 died specifically. So there's, and then 600 are left to flee to rim, the rock at Rimen. So you're left with a thousand there. I'm not the best at math, but I think you're left with a thousand there. So the only way to account for that is that some of them had been dying on day one and day two. It wasn't as if they, they had no fatalities on their side. But they're clearly winning this, this war. 22,000 Israelites die on day one, 18,000 die on day two. So now the whole army, it says, goes up to Bethel. They inquire of the Lord. Now they add to that fasting and they're bringing offerings to the Lord. They're, they're taking this very seriously and the Lord informs them again to attack, but now he does promise them victory. There's also this mention in parentheses, probably in your text, about the ark, that they had the ark of the covenant in their possession. That represented divine counsel, that they could go up to the Lord. It was a means of grace for them to inquire of the Lord. Notice that isn't said about Benjamin. Benjamin did not have the ark. They could not do this same thing. The means of grace was available to Israel. They had not been left to themselves. Even though they're, they're in a downward spiral, they've gone into utter anarchy religiously, morally, and now politically, Repentance is still available to them if they would just cry out to the Lord in the proper way. And it would appear that's possibly what they're doing here. They're crying out to the Lord. It's, it's potential. So day three, Israel uh, again comes up to battle against Gibeah. And you have... Um, Two perspectives given. Maybe you heard, you said, didn't we already read that? <laughs> As you're reading verses 29 through 45, because it's all a picture of day three, but you have it, first of all, from Israel's perspective, verses 29 through 36, the first half of 36, and then the second half of verse 36 through 45 is from Benjamin's perspective. So Israel sets an ambush around Gibeah, which was different than the other days, and they prepare to attack. But once again, the Benjamites come out strong. And they start to lead Israel away, and they've, they begin to slaughter again. But you know, they're very early in that, because it says about 30 men had died. And so Benjamin, again, quickly is assuming they're about to have another victorious day. It's going to be just like the previous two days. But the Israelites this time had a trap. Right? They were bringing them out to the highways where they might entrap them, and then the people that are in, in ambush around Gibeah could, could enter into the city and attack the city and destroy it. And then when they um, would set that city on fire, from the Benjaminites' perspective, it says as soon as they looked back, they realized disaster was close at hand. So you have that. That's the, the new detail, I guess, in, in, uh, from Benjamin's perspective 
is, first of all, that they, they look back at the smoke and they realize that they're in a trap. But also there's the detail of, of where they died, that, that um, a, you know, a, a 18,000 of them were destroyed as they go into the wilderness, and then another 5,000 of them are killed um, are killed on the highways, and then another 2,000 of them die at uh, Gidim. So 25,000 roughly in a round figure of the Benjamites are killed on that last day. So you have 25,000 Benjamites dead, 40,000 Israelites died, and 600 of the Benjamites have fled to the Rock of Rimmon, where they stayed for four months. And you might think, well, let's go back to the beginning of this conflict. It might have been avoided had Israel simply heard the rest of the story. But that's not what's being emphasized here. Right? The application is less a warning about Israel's hasty judgment as it is a statement of God's decisive judgment, God's determined judgment upon his people who are in this downward spiral, not just the Benjamites, by the way, or Benjaminites, as it says in some verses. It's not just the Benjaminites, but it's the entire nation of Israel. The Lord is not merely allowing this to happen. He is deliberately ordaining their judgment. So the Lord has allowed them to destroy themselves, in fact, ordaining them to destroy themselves. This was God's judgment upon both Benjamin and Israel. Just briefly, let's think about that for ourselves. When we allow God to be sovereign, we realize that even when we are doing exactly what he says we ought to do, as Israel had been inquiring and receiving that direction from God, they were told exactly how they should respond. Even when we're doing that, we shouldn't always expect to, uh, we shouldn't, we won't always receive what we expect. See, instead of finding success, we may even face defeat for a time. And this is a, a mystery, right? God does move in a mysterious way. He remains sovereign. We can trust him but we can't always understand. And so even, even so, I think it's important that we remember, like Israel, we always have access to the means of grace. Israel had the ark. They could inquire of the Lord. They could continue to go to him. And we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have that means of grace available to us because of Christ. So after getting vengeance upon Benjamin, the Israelites are now filled with compassion. We're going to have to go through this quickly without much comment, but just a, I want to summarize the chapter for you. The Israelites, first of all, vow to prevent their own daughters from marrying the Benjaminites. 
So they take this vow seriously, despite the fact that they had constantly been intermarrying with Canaanites throughout the book of Judges. But here, they're, again, united. They're not going to allow their own daughters to marry Benjaminites. So they return to Bethel. They mourn the loss of this tribe of Benjamin. And Barry Webb suggests that Israel is protesting here and attempting to absolve themselves of any responsibility. It's sort of like they're, they're putting it back on, in God's hands. Why have you done this? Um, sort of blaming him. And in, in the previous episode, God chastised them by speaking to them. He told them, yeah, go up again. And it ended in their own slaughter to the tune of 40,000 men being killed. Here, he chastises them by remaining silent. In other words, he's not going to be used by them. They're not going to dictate how God will act or respond. Verses 5 through 15, you have the wives that are being given for Benjamin. They're finding wives at Jabesh Gilead. So they have compassion on Benjamin, and they're seeking a way to provide wives for them so that the tribe might remain among them. And they, uh, again, it's reminded throughout this chapter how they made that commitment, so they're not going to offer their own daughters So they determined that Jabesh Gilead did not show up for the war, and therefore they needed to be put to death. So they send out 12,000 of their bravest men to slaughter everyone of Jabesh Gilead, including the women and children, preserving only the virgin women that were among them. And so they bring back 400 young virgins to be the wives of the 600 Benjamites who were at the Rock of Rimen. So they send a, a peace offering essentially to them, letting them know we have wives for you. Now you can come back, but of course, they, they're still missing 200. This is how they decide to show compassion for them. Again, don't forget, this is, this is clarified as them doing what is right in their own eyes in, in verse 25 of chapter 1. So the narrator is not, um, although, although he's just relaying the facts in, in the narrative, he clearly views what they're doing here as wrong based on that last sentence. But they, have, they don't have enough wives for them, so they decide, or they remember, that there's this annual festival where some young virgins will be dancing. And so those 200 men who still need wives, why don't you go and, and set an ambush around this festival, and when you see the women come out to dance, snatch one for yourself. Go and, and catch a, a wife. Now, Shiloh is not informed of this, of course. But they say, when, when they come and complain against us, we'll tell them, hey, be gracious to these men. They, we didn't have enough wives for them from Jabesh Gilead, and so give them, give them, or let them take your daughters for wives. And since you're, you didn't give them to them, you're not actually breaking the vow we made at the beginning, right? So, so you're innocent, and we can all be happy about this scenario. It's, it's kind of ridiculous, right? But, but that's how corrupt they had become. So they, Benjamin follows through on this. And it's just consistent with the ongoing theme of Israel's mistreatment of women. And then again, you have the final summary. The people of Israel departed from there 
At that time, every man to his tribe and family, they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So everyone returned home, and it's still anarchy. Even if there were some signs of possibility of repentance being genuine, it doesn't seem to have taken root. Again, the near elimination and subsequent restoration of the Benjamites portray Israel's need for a king. This anarchy screams out for gospel hope. And the war, the civil war that they had points to the need for a unifying king. And Benjamin, even though they were spared from annihilation, were only spared from annihilation by further corruption. Right? By the by the stealing of wives for them. More destruction of their own people. They needed a righteous king to save them. And that's what you get when you go to the next book. Like you got to get beyond the conclusion of Judges to get to the hope, which is found in Ruth. The bleak outlook is transformed there by this family, which ultimately you get to that, the the greatest picture of that hope in Ruth and Boaz's marriage at the end of chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son was born, uh, has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So the the king is coming. By the end of Ruth. And, And Ruth is, remember, taken, it, it's, it, it's during the time of the judges. We don't know precisely when, but this is a family who is preserving. It's this remnant, it's this picture of a faithful remnant in the midst of anarchy and chaos. So let's personalize this as we close. Our greatest threat is not the depraved culture that surrounds us. It's the remaining depravity that's within us. We need a king who can subdue us. Our sovereign king became the suffering servant, and yet it was while he was in the agony of worldly defeat that he was putting death to death. And in his own death, he defeated death. Rising again on the third day, Jesus had to suffer the penalty of our sin in order to replace the rule of sin over our lives. In his death, Christ wrestled away the power of sin and death. So the power of darkness was overcome by the power of the king. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. A kingdom, right, under a king under a sovereign king. So when God reveals his power over all people, those who belong to him willingly submit themselves to him. We read that in Psalm 110. 
their wills are subdued so that they gladly come to King Jesus. And only then could they do what is opposite of what we read in Judges. Only then could they do what was right in the Lord's eyes instead of what was right in their own eyes. So the depths of our depravity have been met by the heights of Christ's mercy. So just as the the saints before us were waiting for their righteous king to come, so we await our righteous king's return. Let us sing with hearts full of anticipation. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer, that is our song, that is the theme. As we close out this book and as we are reminded of our own depravity, we recognize our need to be subdued by a righteous king, a king who can rescue us and not only subdue us for himself, but then remove the penalty and power of sin over our own lives, putting sin to death on the cross and defeating death in his resurrection. Lord, we want to worship that king now and anticipate his return. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.